Time for security now. Steve Gibson joins us with security news, of course, and updates. And then we'll talk about a new initiative from the Chromium Project to speed up the Internet by, like, a factor of three. Speedy next. Netcasts you love. From people you trust. This is Twit. Audio bandwidth for security now is provided by the new Winamp for Android, featuring wireless sync and one-click iTunes import. Now with free daily music downloads and full-length CD listening parties. Download it for free at winamp.com slash Android. Video bandwidth for security now is provided by Cashfly at C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com. This is Security Now with Steve Gibson, episode 343, recorded Tuesday, March 6th, 2012. HTTP and Speedy. Security Now is brought to you by Carbonite Online Backup, automatic, continuous, unlimited backup for your computer files, only $59 a year. Try it free at Carbonite.com. Use the offer code Security Now and get two bonus months with purchase. It's time for Security Now, the show that protects your security and privacy online. And boy, I've learned a lesson. That's something people care about. <laughs> Steve, Steve Gibson is here. The man, the myth, the legend. Oh, no, I'm supposed to call you the explainer-in-chief, and you are going to explain uh, There we go. You're going to explain Spidey Sense. Oh, yes. It's something that I'm, the more I've looked at it, the more I hope this thing gets traction. Because... It's a project that the Chromium Group, actually one main guy at, at within the Chromium Group, have been working on to, to figure out a way to improve the user's experience surfing the net. And I'll give you a benchmark, which I also cover at the end of this explanation. They've got it running so that the average of the top 25 websites load in one-third the time. Wow. So, I mean, that, that's... And that's not the websites huge... making a change. That's the browser. Well, it's it's looking at the inefficiencies, which, you know, no one really worried about 10 years ago. Right. I mean, the, to, you know, today's Internet is not our grandfather's Internet. No, no, no. And, and pages are much more sophisticated, much more complex. They're pulling stuff from all over the place um there it's not just a page of text and so what google has done is they've carefully looked at how time is spent um there have been other efforts also i mean this is not a what we'll talk about is is a solution to a problem that's been understood for at least a decade there is there is an rfc that was written in 2002 so 10 years ago um talking about a a next generation sort of multiplex streaming protocol to replace TCP. The problem is we can't replace TCP. It's I mean it's just too ubiquitous. Our you know all of our little NAT routers would break in our homes. Uh, just I mean, to say nothing of the internet's routers. So what Google has done is they figured out how to stick a shim in between TCP and HTTP so that nothing really has to change. But if you have an, a, a, 
a speedy SPDY is sort of their acronym like HTTP. This is SPDY. If you have a, a server that is able to serve HTTP for non-speedy aware browsers, but also able to support the speedy enhancement, then if you're using a browser that also understands this next generation protocol, your pages come up in one, your pages finish loading in one third the time. Wow. I mean, that's, that's a huge, huge improvement. And so we're going to talk about what HTTP does, what it doesn't do right, um, a few things, look briefly at what's come before, and then plow into what, you know, how to make it faster, what the Chromium guys have done. And, I mean, they've built a server. They've got a server running. They've got a version of Chrome running. All of this works. And I just hope it, I hope it gets some traction because that, it would be great to have. I mean, why? It, it, and at no cost. It, it Basically, it much better utilizes Internet connections than, than we are doing now. And we'll we'll talk about how. Neat. Yeah. So um not a ton of news. I did want to just mention something that was in the news. I think it was sort of toward the end of maybe the middle or la- late last week about this bodog.com site that what's, got what's that? um it was it was it it's a Canadian based gambling site. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. That that is based in Vancouver. Their domain, bodog.com, is registered with a, a registrar, Canadian registrar domain clip, yet, oh, and, and there's like no strong affiliation of any sort with the U.S. It's, it's, it's not, you know, it's not in the U.S. The registrar is not in the U.S., but despite that fact, um, the state of Maryland, prosecutors of the state of Maryland were able to obtain a warrant ordering VeriSign, you know, which is a U.S.-based company, we understand, VeriSign, which manages the .com domain name registry, that is, it, it runs the .com top-level domain, and also the other registrars feed their, their stuff through VeriSign to that dot, the master .com server records, um, the state of Maryland ordered the VeriSign to redirect the Bodog.com website to a warning page advising that it has been seized by the U.S. Department of Homeland Security. And so um, there's a lot of coverage about this. Uh, one blogger, Michael Geist, wrote, he said, the message from the case is clear. All .com, .net, and .org domain names are subject to U.S. jurisdiction regardless of where they operate or where they were registered. This grants the U.S. a form of super jurisdiction over Internet activities since most other countries are limited to jurisdiction with a real and substantial connection. For the U.S., the location of the domain name registry is good enough. And .com, .net, and .org are located here in the U.S. So he goes on and says the aggressive assertion of internet jurisdiction was one of the key concerns with the Stop Online Privacy Act, SOPA, the congressional bill that died 
following a massive online protest in January. It simply defined any domain name with a registrar or registry in the U.S. as domestic for U.S. law purposes. The Bodog.com case suggests that the provision was not changing the law as much as restating it since U.S. prosecutors and courts follow much the same approach. And so he, he finishes saying, in an era when, government are, when governments are becoming increasingly active in regulating online activities, the Bodog.com case provides a warning that by using popular .com domain names, companies and registrants are effectively opting in to U.S. law and courts as part of the package. And I did see in reaction to this um, a number of people talking about, well, that means we just can't – we can't be – under .com, .org, and .net because it's, it, you know, it, it's subject to being confiscated. Well, and that was the whole point of SOPA was to add these uh, other domains to the uh, ICE takedown capability, right? Right, yeah. right. It was foreign domains. It that, wasn't that for .coms. Yeah, yeah. Correct, correct, correct. Well, and the other big news just, I mean, this is hot news from this morning. Um, it turns out that... A guy named Hector Xavier Monsegur, M-O-N-S-E-G-U-R, um, who lived in uh, New York's Lower East Side in a housing project, was the head of LulzSec. What? That we? Yes. They caught him? Yes. Oh, boy. They, act they actually caught him last June. And they kept it secret. Whoa. No he wonder pleaded, it has been so quiet lately. Uh, he <laughs> pleaded guilty. Uh-huh. He pleaded guilty to the charges, uh, 12 hacking-related charges, on August 15th of last year, then turned state's evidence. Oh, boy. And he turned in the other five top-ranking members of LulzSec who were arrested en masse in a synchronized raid across the globe this morning. Um, Ryan Aykroyd, a.k.a. Kayla, was one of them. Jake Davis, a.k.a. Topiary, uh, both in London. Uh, Darren Martin, M-A-R-T-Y-N, uh, whose handle is Pwn Sauce, P-W-N-S-A-U-C-E. Uh, and don't you... Oh, Kirt Bale, whose handle is Palladium, both in Ireland, and finally Jeremy Hammond, who went by uh, Anarchaos in Chicago. And Ryan Aykroyd, who I mentioned, is believed to be the number two guy, that is Monsager's top deputy, and Jeremy Hammond, um, the guy in Chicago, is believed to be, and he, there, there's a separate um, indictment for him because he's the person believed to be behind the WikiLeaks email breach who hacked the U.S. security company Stratfor, got all of those emails and sent them off to Assange and company. So uh, this was a big deal this morning. Wow, wow, wow. wow. Uh, hmm. It turns out Hector is uh, Hector who they caught in June and who, who um, pleaded guilty two months later in August uh, he goes by Cebu, uh, Xavier de Leon, and just Leon. Uh, he's an unemployed 28-year-old father of two 
living in a public housing project in New York's Lower East Side. Uh, and he became a cooperating witness, as they termed it, ah. in June. Um, I put up a um, – oh, it's no, I didn't. It's, it's for a different story. Gizmodo has uh, – it's just gizmodo.com slash 589-0886. So that's pretty easy to get in. Gizmodo, G-I-Z-M-O-D-O dot com slash 589-0886. On that page are it's all the legal documentation, all of the, the, the collective and individual indictments uh, which are hosted over on, on ScribD, but you're able to download them. <laughs> Good looking guy. <laughs> <laughs> oh boy. Yeah, so that's Lulzsec. Luz, Luz and you know, and, and they have of course ties to Anonymous. There were some some over reporting done talking about oh well this ends you know all of of, of anonymous. It's like well no this is this is, this is six guys who were at the top of Lull's sec and certainly very active in hacking. But this is you know this doesn't end the you know the the careers of anonymous. I have heard and I, I get the sense that the truth about these groups though are there are a few a small number of elite or talented hackers and the rest are script kiddies or uh, you know people running. Uh, the low earth uh or ion cannon. cannon yeah yeah and in fact one of it even in reading some of these stories and looking at some of these depositions or or rather indictments they describe the roles these people played and in many cases they say well this guy was a a kernel hacker who found the exploits right. and then turned them over to exactly. somebody else yeah yeah, that makes sense. I mean, it you know these people are fairly skilled, fairly significantly skilled. I think. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. So it's interesting though that he turns states evidence <laughs> because there's no honor among hackers, and yeah, uh, and they kept a secret for so long. They must that net must have extended pretty to a pretty broad number of people. Are, are we going to see more indictments? I would guess we will. Well, well, you know those the five people were arrested this morning, following up on oh, Hector's arrest right. okay. back in June. So now right. you can imagine they will be squeezed. There'll be more. And yeah. yeah. Wow. So I ran across an interesting page that I thought our listeners would find interesting. Uh, under the topic of Privacy Watch, this is a page you can go to. I created for this one a, a, a Security Now bit.ly shortcut. That is to say, this is, we're, this is Security Now episode 343. So if you put in bit.ly slash capital S capital N 343, that will redirect you to Tom Anthony's page where he's able to tell which social networks you're logged in. (laughs) I'm logged into everything. (laughs) Except Twitter. I use a a Twitter client. So I, I, I am on Twitter, in fact. But it only shows what you're logged into via your browser. I mean, I've got Twitter, so see the, Twitter so running see right here, but uh, and yeah. Google and Google Plus. Isn't that interesting? Wow. Yep. It turns out that, and he says, this is a demonstration of how a website can detect which social networks a user is logged into when they visit. In my tests, he says, it seems to work in all the major browsers: Firefox, Chrome, IE7, and on Safari and Opera. So, what that means is. That using this technology, which he explains and is essentially publishing, any website that someone goes to is able to detect whether they are currently logged in to Facebook, 
Twitter, Google or Go- and Google Plus in, in individually. And so this little page, this bit.ly slash capital S capital N three four three will take you over to, to Tom's page where you can see for yourself. So it's like, whoops, um, you know, just something to be aware of. I mean, that's not a big deal, but, you know, it's like, well, it's, uh, it's not a secret. Um, a couple of weeks ago, might have been last week, we did a, we were, well, we did a Q&A, Leo. Um, I read a question that had some fun math in it. Um, and this was a guy who decided to see how long it would take to crack 256-bit encrypt, symmetric encryption. And, and reading from the transcript of, of the podcast, we said, so let's say the tricky government, and this is reading his question. His question was uh, paraphrasing. So let's say the tricky government has a secret algorithm that somehow allows them to weaken the strength of, of brute forcing a 256-bit symmetric encryption key to one trillionth of the original strength. So we're just going to imagine that there's some way that, you know, the government has to do that. And let's say they had a computer that can try 100 trillion guesses per second. And let's say this computer was one cubic millimeter in size. And let's say they build a cracking complex the size of the entire Earth made out of these one cubic millimeter crypto cracking computers. And he says, in, he said in his, in, in his question, he said, if I did my math right, it would still take 34 trillion years to crack. And he says, I like that. And then, um, and so I think that, that might have been you, Leo, reading the question saying, I like that. I responded, I like that too. And then, Leo, you said, did you check his math? Well, I didn't. <laughs> but uh, 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 Jason Bash, who has a website, jasonbash.com, did the math. He tweeted me. Uh, he's at Nerds Limited, and it's also nerdslimited.com is his site. Um, he sat down with a copy of, of Math Lab, did the math, and get this, Leo, 33.8802 trillion years <laughs> so our, our right original <laughs> our original questioner was right 34 right trillion years yeah and it's but if we want to get a little more precise 33.8802 trillion years it's a rounding error but again that really helps to put into perspective that i mean we we've made a series of assumptions which are you know worst 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 case that there's a, a way of doing it in a trillionth of the original. We just you know threw away that many bits, essentially, from the key. And that it's going to do 100 trillion guesses per second, which would be really impressive. And that it's a cube, a millimeter, um, a millimeter cube in size. And that we have an Earth's size worth of them, given all that. And I don't know how we power it or cool it, of course, those little details. But still... 34 trillion years to crack. So 256-bit in symmetric encryption looks like it's good to go, given that the only attack we know on it is brute force. Um, I got an interesting piece of feedback about Spinrite that uh, I thought was very clever from a listener of ours uh, named Mike Whalen. 
um, sent it to me on the 18th of February. He said, hi, Steve. I've been a Spinrite user for many years. It has served me well, and I consider it an indispensable tool in my IT arsenal. Having said that, I haven't had that much occasion to use it. I happen to work for a company and with a colleague who's very focused on backups. We do a combination of local and cloud backups with a service called eFolder, which we resell. We manage anywhere from 200 to 250 desktops, and we do see dead drives. But since we have backups all over the place, we rarely see a need to fix a dead drive. We just toss it out and restore. Nevertheless, I like to play with Spinrite and have fun and have run it on a number of dead drives that we encounter. I've been using it fairly simply. I'd run it as level two or higher, and if it worked, yay. If it didn't, well, as I said, we have lots of backups. On a recent security now, you mentioned level one and how it can force a drive to recognize bad spots on the drive. That gave me an idea. And actually, that's I was talking about how that is the case, but also that's a use case for running Spinrite on on thumb drives, that is on on you know flash drives, because they're using error correction a lot. Their cells are soft, especially as they keep cranking the density up. These multi-level cells have problems and rely on error correction very much in the same way that bits are soft in the magnetic storage of a hard drive. So algorithms are used to sort of forgive the fact that we don't have exactly what we what, what we wrote, but it's close enough that we can figure out what we meant, which is what the error correction technology in the drive does. So anyway, continuing, he says, that gave me an idea. I recently took possession of a Western Digital MyBook external USB drive that was throwing itself offline when Windows or anything accessed a certain area of the disk. The drive would become unresponsive. You'd hear the drive spin down. It would spin back up and repeat that problem whenever the same area was touched. I replaced the drive with a NAS. We were due to add one at the site anyway. Meanwhile, I took the disk back to my office to see what Spinrite could do. I disassembled the MyBook and connected the SATA drive inside to a desktop machine. The results were not good. Basically, in levels two or above, Spinrite would start processing the disk and the drive would spin itself offline, just like when it was in the case. Spinrite would freeze and couldn't continue. I never got through one successful run at levels two through five. I even tried level two a couple of times, thinking maybe I'd made progress each with each run, but no go. Your statement about level one, though, got me to thinking. Could I run the drive at level one and force the drive to make a decision on those possible bad spots? I did that. I ran Spinrite on the drive at level one. Success. Spinrite was able to process the entire drive. I then ran level two, which had already failed multiple times before, and success again. I then ran level three for good measure. The end result, the drive is completely repaired and working perfectly, all data on it fully recovered. I've used this method on two drives that would not get through levels two through five. Level one first, then run subsequent levels. I'm a terrible documentation reader. Maybe Spinrite's documentation points out this in bold HTML blink tag red. Well, I didn't see it. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. For mentioning he knows you level- too well. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for mentioning level one. 
Perhaps you could suggest level one as a way to ease a problem drive that won't get through two through five. Well, that's brilliant, and it's not written down anywhere, except now it'll be in the transcript, and all of our listeners just got a new tip for running Spinrite. If you have a drive which, which like this, the, the problem is that all of the other levels are writing something. Level one is a read-only pass. And that's why it's safe to run on thumb drives oh. and because it doesn't write anything, absolutely nothing. It only reads. But the beauty of that is that, as we were saying before, the act of reading shows the drive it has a problem. And clearly this, for whatever was going wacky with this and a couple other drives that Mike found, writing gave the drive fits, but reading was okay. So reading was sort of eased into it more gently and allowed the drive to fix the problems so that then writing to them were writing to different areas because the bad spots had been relocated to to good areas on the drive. So that's a great tip. It'll definitely make it into um, our our notes for the future. So and thank you, Mike. Blinking red tags. <laughs> red blinking <laughs> Danger, Will Robin. Danger, danger, danger. This portion of the show, well, the entire show, this this actually is brought to you by our friends at, uh, wait a minute, that's the wrong one. Where is my Carbonite? There it is. Carbonite.com. I, uh, I, I, I said, I use, I use this line on the radio show uh, this weekend. I like it so much, I'm going to use it here. We Our computers ought to have warning labels on them. Warning, I will crash someday, probably when you need it the most. I will, <laughs> I will lose all your data. Maybe because of you, but I will. I will fail you. <laughs> Do not trust me. Uh, if Maybe if people, if, if computers came with that warning label, people would back up more often. Uh, and I think the best backup, if you think about it, is going to be something that does it without you thinking about it, so you don't have to press a button. And I think once a week, you know, most of us uh, who do backup, have that backup programs, might set it to you know, once a week, do a backup. That's not enough either. Really what you want is something that's always kind of backing up changes. So you modify a document, and then it's backed up, like instantly. And best of all, uh, on in the cloud, on the Internet, away, you know, so that if, you know, I've been reading these horrible, horrific stories about the tornadoes. If a tornado hits or there's a fire or somebody steals all your stuff, your, your data doesn't go with it. Your backup is somewhere else. Off-site, continuous backup. That's what Carbonite offers. And very affordable. If you're if you're just backing up everything just if you're just backing up everything on your internal drive, less than five bucks a month, fifty nine dollars a year, and they have plans for external drives. They have small business plans, multiple computer plans. Go to Carbonite.com. Take a look at all the plans. When you want to sign for uh, up for one, use the offer code if you will Security Now, so Steve gets credit. Security Now, and uh, you you don't need a credit card to try it for two weeks free, fifteen days free. Uh, you also, uh, if you decide to sign up after you do the trial, and I really, I always encourage people to do the trial because one thing people don't know or don't think about is Carbonite's totally dependent on your upstream bandwidth. So if you're on a modem, don't use Carbonite. <laughs> and many people think they have more bandwidth than they do. So do try Carbonite. Make sure that it's, you know, that first two weeks should be enough to back your first backup set. Should be done in, in two weeks. Then it's actually very easy. It's just a little trickle every once in a while. If you're backing up 18 terabytes, Carbonite, not the best choice. <laughs> 200 gigabytes or less would be kind of the sweet spot here. Again, if do the math. You know, depending on your bandwidth, that's going to be difficult to do much more than that. Carbonite.com. Security now is the offer code. 
two weeks free. Do the free trial. If you decide to buy after the free trial, use Security Now. Again, you'll get 14 months for the price of 12 on any of their plans. Carbonite for Mac or PC. It's just it's just the right way to back up. Carbonite.com. Use the offer code Security Now. We really appreciate uh, their support uh, for this show. You may have you may have seen recently that Carbonite uh, yanked its advertising from a nationally known talk show host. And I'm just trying to. I'm lobbying to get the rest, all that money to us. <laughs> all the money they're not spending on Rush Limbaugh. I want it. Carbonite. <laughs> uh, yes, he got a little. He got a little carried away. Rush did, and uh, you know, it's got to be. I, I actually have two minds because uh, you know, uh, it's difficult. You know, it, 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 we have free speech in this country, and somebody can say what they want on the on the radio. Although, actually, that's not strictly true. You can't say what you want on the radio. And uh, certainly there's a lot of heat on advertisers. But they get heat both ways, right? You pull off a show, you get heat from the people who love the show. Um, so it's very difficult. You don't want to get in that position. That's why they should always advertise on this show because we – no politics. No politics at all. Well, a little politics. Unless you're in, into – if you're a big lull sex supporter, maybe this isn't the show for you. All right. Let's talk I, – I, now, I, I have a couple questions. First of all, is Chromium the same as Google? Well, are these guys Google employees? Uh, the guy who's doing it, I think, works for Google, and it's in the, uh, it's all open source, and the spec is available, and there's there's it's still they're they're working it out. Um, I checked in it to, to to see the project began a couple years ago, and. It was last touched like a in January, I think. So you're talking about Speedy, uh, Speedy, yes. Yeah. Chromium is always updated, but Speedy got it. Yeah, 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 yeah. So and it should be, talk- by the way, Spidey for Spidey sense. Okay, go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> don't don't listen to him, kids. <laughs> um, okay, so because I wanted to talk about this protocol, we discussed before TCP and I explained when I was when I wanted to do a, a podcast on TCP that I needed to do that so you could understand some of the problems which the speedy protocol fixed and which the HTTP protocol has because it runs atop TCP and so just to refresh briefly we'll rem- we'll remember that when when we're connecting to a remote machine. We're doing that over this internet, this packet-switched network. And in the old days, when we literally had a modem with tones that were was connecting to the other end, the the bandwidth was fixed and known, as was the round trip time. It was it was truly a connection between those two endpoints. What we have today is a is a virtual as known as a virtual connection because it's essentially the agreement between the endpoints that they're connected and then the data rather than being physical wire as we know are individual autonomous packets which are addressed and sort of aimed at each end by the other and they're they they hop from one router to the next until they get to their destination. So one of the problems that TCP, the, the, the designers of the TCP protocol recognized was 
there was no way for them to know what the bandwidth was. That is, how often can we send packets? How, how much can we send? Uh, what is the round-trip delay? How long will it take to get acknowledgments back from the other end that they received the packet so that we know whether to send it again if, if it got lost or not? And, and, and how do we deal with this? So there's something called the TCP slow start. And the idea is that TCP starts off cautiously when, when you when you initiate a connection neither end knows anything about the the nature of the speed of the connection it has to the other so it's it's built so that it starts off cautiously and as it continues to succeed as its packets that it's sending are being are being correctly acknowledged by the other end that acknowledgement that comes back encourages it to go faster and faster and faster. And it it literally goes as fast as it can until it starts having problems. Then it backs off a little bit and then comes up again and backs off a little bit. And so it's always sort of bumping its head against the ceiling of how fast it's able to run. But this all means that there's a the so-called slow start. There's a ramp up. Well, now think in terms of our web browsers and what that means. Because the way the web browser works is we put in a URL and hit enter. And the browser looks up the IP address for the domain name in the URL that we entered. Then it establishes a TCP connection to that IP address and sends its request. The other end, the server, receives the request it also has this brand new connection so it starts to send the page but it can't send it fast because that's not the way tcp works tcp has to be cautious it has to it has to sort of seek out the ceiling of of where anywhere between the two endpoints is there a spot of congestion see cuz that's the cool thing is the way the system works you could have a very fast a client connection to the internet, a very fast server connection to the internet, but there could be some problem somewhere in between. It could be a flaky router or an overloaded router, and these packets have to get through there. So TCP works very cleverly to, to just do the best job it can, but it means it has to start slow. So that means that that page is not going to come as fast to us as it technically could if this were on a mature TCP connection that had already learned how fast it was able to go. Now the problem gets even worse because that page comes to the browser. And as we know, pages are composed of a whole plethora of additional assets, pictures, no, I mean, especially contemporary websites, you know, full of little social networking buttons and icons. And so all of this comes in on the main page that's, that's then have tons of URLs for other stuff. It'll have script resources back to the same server. It'll, it'll basically spray queries out all over the net 
to all the other services, advertising services that, we, that we've been talking about recently, you know, anything that provides content for that page. And it's just bewildering now how much that is. Well, every single one of those is a new TCP connection that has to start out slow and ramp itself up. So, so that slows things down. And we, we, th there, was a, there was some work when we went from HTTP 1.0 to HTTP 1.1. Um, the, the problem was that originally a browser would make a connection for a single query. It would send the URL, for example, to the server, get the response, and by a mutual agreement, they would both terminate the connection. Then, if the browser saw, oh, look, I've got 26 things. You know, I got seven different JavaScript files, and I've got a bunch of icons and navigation stuff and menu resources, all this stuff I need from that same server. It would, for every single one of those resources, initiate a TCP connection, ask for that thing, wait till it got it, break the connection. And in TCP, there is no memory from one connection to the next. Neither is there memory, even simultaneous connections to the same server. Don't, there, there's no interconnection sharing in the protocol. So, so what, what engineers realized, and this is 10 years ago, that you know, we've had the web for a while now, they were realizing this is just not very efficient. TCP is a fantastic solution for end-to-end -end communication, but it's, it's just not good for short-lived requests. It, it doesn't make much sense. In fact, that's one of the reasons that DNS, for example, uses UDP, is that there is no setup and, and speeding and, and timing and sizing and everything. Uh, you know, a, a DNS query is a single query packet that goes out and a single one that comes back, and you're done. So they kept the, in DNS, they kept the, the overhead low, but they don't have any of the benefits in the UDP protocol that we get with TCP, which is all of this work being done for us. If we send a big file over, it's possible because of the packet routing, the packets are going to arrive in a different order than they were sent. So they're all, as we know from talking about TCP in the past, they're all serialized and, it's, and, and the, the receiver is able to sort of check them in on the way in. And if it sees one that's missing, it's able to wait for that to catch up and then it drops it in the right place. So the, the TCP protocol does all this great stuff, but there are, some, there are some costs to it. And one is it's just not great for short-lived connections. It just barely gets going and the connection gets dropped. So when they went to HTTP 1.1, they introduced the designers of HTTP, evolved the protocol to introduce the notion of a persistent connection where th there would be a header. Actually, there was a, there was a keep alive header, it was called, in HTTP 1.0, but wasn't widely supported. Um, they, they did a better job in HTTP 1.1. And, and the idea would be that the browser would not, the, the browser and server would agree not to drop the connection, that they would hold the connection up. And then, so there would be a query and then a response and then a query over the same connection and then a response and so forth. And for a while, Browsers were constrained 
to only having two connections per domain. You, the idea was we, don't, we didn't want to flood a server with 20 connections from, you know, between two points. Because if you think about it, it's really not efficient. It's not efficient in terms of the, the resources to manage the connections, both at the client's machine and the server, because you have you know, 20 sets of data, all these individual connections. It's inefficient from a, because of TCP slow start problem. You don't want a, to, to launch 20 connections. They're all going to start slow. So, and you've, you'd ultimately have some fixed amount of bandwidth between these two points. So if you've got 20 connections all going at once, there you're not going to actually end up finishing any sooner. You're going to end up finishing later because you've got 20 slow starts and, and a, some sort of bandwidth limitation between there. So it's, it makes much more sense to bring up a limited number of connections. And for quite a while, it was two um, and then let TCP learn what the bandwidth is and then send, in, instead of having 20 connections with one query each, just have two connections and send 10 queries each. And those, those later queries and responses will be much faster because they're running over a more mature TCP connection. So that was the, there, there was this two connection per domain limit that browsers were enforcing the problem is, as web pages got just bigger and 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 heavier, many browsers have now extended that to. I've seen a number six uh, is used often, um, just because it, it's it, there. It just you just want more resources from the remote server. Still, it's it's not as efficient as being a little more patient. So, so there was this notion in, introduced in. HTTP 1.1 called pipelining. Pipelining, the concept there was instead of this, the client issuing a, a request and waiting for the reply, the client could, and, and pipelining is a term we've talked about back years ago when we were talking about how to speed up processors, the idea being that you could have multiple things in the pipeline at once. So a browser could could make a query, receive the page, holding the TCP connection up, and then look at the page and then issue a series of requests in the connection to the server and then get back a series of responses. It turns out that there were too many proxies involved on the net which were not bug-proof in in the in the face of pipelining the proxies want to work on a single transaction basis and as a consequence pipelining although it's technically in the http 1.1 spec it's disabled by default today in all major browsers they don't do it they wait for the response to come back then they issue another query that's the only way to reliably get http to work um, at this point now the problems with a limited number of connections, which which we want to have in order to get performance, but one problem is that that in that inherently serializes everything. It means that any resource that was, for example, stalled for some reason, it might be just it might be big 
and low priority, but the browser asked for it, and other like smaller resources that that could be served more quickly, they're waiting behind the big one. So there's a there's a problem with this serialization, even when we've got a mature statically held TCP connection to make these HTTP queries over. So so that's a problem. That also means because we're serializing everything, there's no ability to simultaneously render objects. We've seen, for example, on, on, on web pages where JPEGs fill in and they fill in one, then the next, then this one, then that one, then that one. And, and if, the, if your bandwidth is sufficiently low, you can actually see the picture sort of render in. Well, it might be nice if we were able to do more things in parallel. So that was one of the things that, that um, the Chromium guys looked at. Now, we take it for granted that clients ask servers, that is web clients, ask web servers for everything they need. But it's worth questioning why that is so. It's the way it's always been, but think about it. The server that is sending the client the page, it has the page before the client has it. And that means if it looked at the page, it knows what other things it has that the client is going to ask for if they're not in the client's cache. So one of the problems with HTTP, which we didn't regard as a problem in the beginning because it was always designed to be a, 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 a query and reply based protocol, but there is no concept of server, what's called server push. The idea of the server pushing things to the client on its own because it has reason to believe the client is going to be getting around to ask for it at some point. So that would save the time of the, of the page getting there, the client processing it, figuring out what's there, and then issuing requ requests that have to go back out. Essentially, the server is sitting around with its, its server-to-client bandwidth unused, sitting there not being, you know, just being wasted, time is being wasted, while the page is getting to the client so the client can look at it and then begin sending requests back. So, so if, if we really look at how the time is spent, we can see that there are ways all kinds of clever things we can do to, to compress this whole transaction between the client and the server. Now, another problem is that the payload itself, the, the thing that's being requested, a, a, a page of text, for example, can be compressed. Compression, uh, both uh, a compression technology called deflate and also more popularly and better, gzip, are now supported by all browsers and servers. The idea being that the client is able to say in its query to the server, hey, I know about compression, so feel free to save time and speed, compress this on the wire before you send it. So even though the server may not have it stored in a compressed fashion, it can use the gzip protocol to do a, essentially a stream compression, to compress the stream so that it is much smaller. Web pages have a huge amount of redundancy in them with all of the tags that they contain, let alone, um, you know, just 
often English compresses really well because of, of, of common words. But, but web pages in general, just because they've got so much structure, which is highly compressible, that's a win. So payload can be compressed, but there has never been any way to compress the query or that the 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 query and the query headers or the response headers that is the headers themselves have never been subject to compression that just wasn't part of the spec it turns out headers have been getting bigger everybody's we've been talking about is going crazy with cookies cookies are growing it turns out that the that the um headers can vary from 200 to as much as 2k bytes and they're typically between 7 and 800 bytes in size but that can be squeezed way down and in the case of for example an ADSL line where you're highly asymmetric in bandwidth you've got much lower bandwidth upbound than you have down down downstream that kind of just the, the size of the query headers is slowing down every single query because there's no way to compress them the other thing that is slowing down every single query is a huge amount of redundancy. There, there are headers that never change between a, a given transaction. For example, the user agent. If you're, you know, the user agent identifies your browser. Well, if you're sitting there and the browser is sending off a whole bunch of queries to the same server, it's not changing. So the user agent data is never changing, yet every single query has a user agent header, which is highly redundant. Uh, the host header is also not going to change. Where it, it, where it describes, it says, you know, www.google.com, that's going out. Even though we have a connection to Google's IP, we're still declaring this is going to www.google.com and, again, is highly redundant, as is the accept header that tells the server what formats the client is able to accept their the responses in very redundant and and uncompressed so so there's there's just a lot that that can be done to fix the protocol now again as i said this has been known for about a decade there was some work done on a next generation tcp it wouldn't replace TCP, but it was called SCTP, Stream Control Transmission Protocol. And, and the idea would be that a, if this had ever happened and it, it died on the vine, it, 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 there's been no progress on it in 10 years, since 2002. There's an introduction to SCTP, which, is an R, which did make an RFC. It's RFC 3286, which describes what the the original goals of the system were. And the idea would be that in the same way that UDP I just I'm pull I don't remember the number. I think it's I think it's hex eleven and maybe decimal seventeen. That would make sense. But anyway, UDP has a protocol number, TCP has a protocol number. One is six. Anyway, it's been a long time <laughs> since I've looked at these. But the idea would be that's they what would reference assign, books are for. You don't need to. Yes, know that. yeah. They would decide. I'm annoyed that I don't remember it, right. but you know, I, I yeah, I have enough in my head. So that's exactly um, right. So this would be assigned a new protocol number, and so the browser would 
send off on top of the IP protocol, it would it would embed in the IP packet this SCTP packet, much as right now we embed a TCP packet within the IP packet, and it would define a new protocol. And one of the things that this protocol would offer is the concept of multiplexed streams and and stream-aware congestion control. So so the, the idea would be you'd establish a connection between endpoints and and then the the protocol itself would would understand the idea of independent streams of data sharing that same connection. We have nothing like that now in in our protocols. We've got, you know, they're they're very simple, UDP and TCP. And if somebody wanted to do that, they, they would either have to redes- come up with a, a next-generation TCP or add something on top. And that's what Speedy does, which we'll talk about in some detail in a second. But the problem, of course, with coming up with a brand-new protocol is nobody else knows about it. I mean, none of the routers know about it. Now, you can argue that a router probably doesn't care it's it's routing IP packets and is largely agnostic to the contents of the IP packet. So it could contain any – the IP packet could be the envelope containing any interior protocol. But our home routers do care. NAT routers are protocol aware. Um, they're – I mean that's what they're doing. They're, they're needing to understand ports in order to, to handle – um, the whole NAT routing job and IP packets have IP addresses, but they don't have ports. Ports is an abstraction that lives inside that packet if it's carrying a UDP or a TCP or some other port-oriented protocol. So, so there's it would hugely impact our existing infrastructure if someone tried to just float some brand new protocol because it would make browsers faster. It just, you know, and thus <laughs> this thing died even 10 years ago. There was a, then there was some work done on how HTTP would run on top of this. There was a different thing called SST, which is structured stream transport. It had some of the same problems. And then there was something called MUX and SMUX, which they stopped, stopped work on that about in 07. Nothing's really happened since then, as I recall. So, so, there has been an awareness that we need something better. There is clearly pressure with the increasing size and complexity, and and, and well, and the fact that we'd like we'd like our internet experience to be much more active, much more interactive. You know, we're we're sort of we're getting to the point where we're seeing storage in the cloud, services in the cloud, applications running in the cloud. Applications also being spontaneously downloaded in script into our browsers, but these are wanting to be very interactive. So we really want the best utilization of the bandwidth between us and the the servers that we're connecting to as possible. So Speedy comes along. Speedy uh, has the goals of a achieving a large reduction in page load time that is latency latency is the word the, the the guys on the team use because what they want it is just you know if you're using a if you're if you're using a browser for example that doesn't understand speedy 
with a server that does, they would like there to be a dramatic difference in experience with a speedy, aware browser. And frankly, if this can, it, they're going to make the server open source. Um, one can imagine it, it, you know, maybe Apache will, will grab some of the code and upgrade themselves. And, and then that'll get incorporated into some of the Unixes and Linuxes. And that'll put pressure on Microsoft to support the speedy protocol on IIS over on the, on, on the Windows-based servers. And when that happens, Google will have Chrome. Well, that means all the other browsers are going to immediately have to support speedy because given what I am about to tell you, this thing really does work. And so imagine going to a website, you know, you go to Facebook and in one third the time the the page has snapped up and it, and it feels different. It feels dramatically faster using a browser that knows speedy. Well, all the other browsers are going to have to support yeah. it in order yeah. to compete. So, so the, the goal is a large reduction in page load time. Um, they wanted in the design of this to minimize deployment complexity, which is to say, just run on top of TCP. Don't reinvent TCP. We can't at this point. You know, it would break all of our NAT routers. It would break switches at the other end that that, that are running the big server farms. The routers in between don't care, but we still couldn't get our data back and forth. So, you know, use TCP. We have a huge investment in it. It works once. I mean, and it works beautifully. Once it gets started, it's very efficient. It just isn't efficient to be used in, you know, for little tiny requests and queries that are then dropped. And they wanted no changes required from the website. That is, they wanted to be able to introduce this protocol support in the server and have a browser that was aware and all the magic happens between the two of them and on the line in between, but the same page ends up being rendered at the client. The same content is sourced at the server, which is beautiful because, it, again, this really does ease adoption. So more specifically, they've come up with a protocol which allows concurrent HTTP requests to run across a single TCP connection. And I'm going to explain how they've done, how they've done that. But so... They, what, what Speedy gives us, and I mean, this is working now and has been benchmarked, is concurrent requests across a single connection. Um, it, is, it absolutely always compresses headers, the so-called metadata, the stuff that isn't actually, you know, like cookies and expires headers and, you know, the user agent and the host headers and, and all that. That's always compressed in Speedy protocol. Um, re- the redundant headers are not part of the protocol. They don't appear. They're eliminated and, and unnecessary ones also. There are some headers which were needed for, for the non-speedy protocol, which speedy's operation inherently eliminates. And SSL is always going to be the underlying transport protocol. So they're just assuming that they recognize that we're headed to a world where we're going to have point-to-point security. So 
let's you know let's strongly enforce SSL connections so that we just know that if we've got a browser with a speedy connection, it it will automatically be using SSL. And that's also important because if you had some if you had some proxies that were trying to parse your traffic. Remember, for example, that ISPs are often running caching proxies. And the idea being that they're able to serve common website pieces to their own users more quickly so the query doesn't have to go out on the Internet off to a remote server if it's in the ISP's cache. And that lowers their costs because they're able to use their internal bandwidth to to satisfy their clients, not have to send stuff out on the Internet. And that's bandwidth they pay for. The point, though, is that that means that there is, even though we don't ever, we don't see them, that we don't see their IP addresses, we're not aware of them, they're there caching what we do. That's, for example, the reason that I have Shields Up initiate an SSL connection in order to bypass the, the, the proxy to get the user's IP address. I don't want to test the security of the proxy. I'm being asked to test the IP of the user. So I do that specifically for proxy avoidance and speedy will run over SSL similarly for proxy avoidance so that it blinds proxies that otherwise would sort of see something that looks like an HTTP query, but not quite. I mean, it would really foul things up. So, so this is a good thing for them too. The other thing that speedy does, which is huge is it enables the server to initiate communications with the client that is to push data to the client whenever possible, not, not force the server to sit there knowing what the client is going to get around to asking for as soon as the query gets back to it, but to be preemptive, which is a huge win because obviously the, the best response we're going to get is if we, can, if we can get the TCP connection ramped up, keep it running at that speed, and keep it full because, you know, uh, uh, time that isn't being spent sending data is just time that we have to wait for the, the page to end up rendering. So conceptually, we understand how the, we have a, a, a layered set of protocols. We've talked about just now how IP packets are envelopes containing TCP packets, and within the TCP protocol is SSL, which is a which is an application protocol that runs on top of TCP, well, Speedy will run on top of SSL and HTTP runs on top of Speedy. So essentially what we've done is we've sort of, we've shimmed in between SSL and HTTP, we've shimmed another layer of, of protocol stack. What that means is that nothing below needs to change and nothing above needs to change as long as the as long as the client and server are aware that 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 you know they've 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 come to an agreement that they both understand speedy version whatever and negotiated that and then are able to take advantage of its features so specific features are it supports this the multiplexing of streams the idea is that once a TCP connection is established, 
the protocol is frame-based. So, so we're used to thinking in terms of packets. We have to sort of disabuse ourselves of that. Think in terms of TCP just being a stream. Now, the fact that TCP breaks that stream into packets to get it where it's going, we understand, but we're going we're, we're to ignore that for the moment. Now we're, we, we, we have a t we we're seeing at our end a TCP connection and we're just feeding it we're just feeding it data. So we break that data into frames ourselves. Every frame has an eight byte header which 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 describes the balance of that frame. Frames can either be control frames or data frames. Um, in the case of a control frame, the very first bit is a one. Data frames have the ver their very first bit is a zero. Then in, for a control frame, there's a 15-bit version number, which <laughs> ought to be enough, um, and then a 16-bit type, which identifies the type of frame. Then there's eight bits of flags, and in, in the second block of 32 bits and 24 bits of length. So that specifies the length of the payload followed by the payload. Data frames, as I said, have, have that first bit is a zero for, for data. Then they have a 31-bit stream ID. So that means we know that 32 bits is 4 gigs, so 31 bits is 2 gigs. So we have... Two billion possible streams which can be individually tagged and flow over the connection. However, even streams always go from client to server and odd streams always go from server to client. And the stream IDs always increase monotonically in each direction. So as the client is initiating new streams... It's numbering them 2, 4, 6, 8, 10, 12, and so forth. As the server is creating streams, it's 1, 3, 5, 7, 9, and so forth, both in upwards directions with the proper evenness and oddness. And so, so the concept is that we have a single TCP connection. Now, it's, it's freaky when, you, when you, you say, wait a minute, but wouldn't more connections give me more bandwidth? You know, but... But really, that is not the case. We're used to thinking that if we make more connections, we're going to get more bandwidth. But, but if we make more connections to the same place, those connections absolutely are going to compete with each other. So all you do is lose if you make more connections. So this system is one connection between client and server. But because it lays on top of TCP, it lays this frame abstraction, and frames have stream IDs. And so, obviously, the, the client is able, over the single TCP connection, it's no, longer, it's no longer just sending queries, like, directly on the wire. Instead, it's packaging them in frames, so a, a single query lives in a single frame. The by by convention of Speedy, the 
The query headers are always compressed, so that's going to be much smaller. But but think about it now. What that means is that it's able to it's able to create a whole batch of very small queries, stacking them in TCP, not thinking about packets. We're not dealing with packets now. These are frames which may well cross packet boundaries, but it means that we're able to pack the TCP packets with much more. So what we get is a much higher level of utilization of the bandwidth we have in both directions. The server is similarly unconstrained. If, if it receives this uh, burst of queries, it's able simultaneously to answer them all. And it does. It's able to to pull them and just and as, as quickly as it can to just to, to to begin multiplex feeding them back on the line, which means every single outgoing packet is going to be filled. Even if these things are small and normally you'd have short packets um, and, and, and then you'd be waiting for acknowledgments and so forth here because we, we, I mean, this, this multiplexing is such a huge win because we're able to essentially fill every single packet to the brim. TCP works much more efficiently that way, and we're able to. The server is able to just send all this stuff at once. Now, they solve the problem of of some things being more important than the other by having two bits assigned for priority. So the client is able to set a priority on its query, 0, 1, 2, or 3. 0 being the lowest priority, 3 being the highest. It's not something that has to be honored by the server, but it typically would be. And the idea would be that, that because there's now we have this multiplex, it might very well be that the client says, oh, I need the scripts for my page more importantly than I need you know, pictures that are going to be loaded because we, we need the scripts in order to get things running or I need other, you know, other important pieces. So the client is able to prioritize its queries even while sending them all in a big burst along with the, with the lower priority queries. And the advantage of that is it doesn't have to manually hold the lower priority queries back knowing that it needs the high priority ones first. It's able to just dump them all in this multiplex connection, knowing that the server will receive them and will use the available bandwidth to send all the highest priority queries back, the, 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 the responses to those queries back before it gets around to sending the lower priority ones. So um, it, it is a, it's a relatively straightforward, simple addition to the existing TCP connection to the existing TCP protocol it is a it it essentially does not hugely change HTTP at all it 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 compresses the headers it eliminates some makes some slight rearrangements so that a speedy aware browser knows how to issue these queries and of course knows how to use its one connection between it and the server in order to saturate and in the benchmarks which Google did, they took the content of the top 25 benchmarks and simulated 
a cable modem that had a 4 megabit downstream bandwidth from the server to the client and a 1 megabit bandwidth from the client upstream to the server. The average load time of these 25 websites, the top 25 on the Internet, was 2.348 seconds over HTTP. And if you think about it, that's like, okay, you go to a big page with, a, with that kind of bandwidth, you know, less than two and a half seconds, 2.348 seconds. Switch to speedy protocol, 0.856. So from 2.34, so that's like 2.4, 2.8. So it's about a factor of three to one. It takes, I mean, it's dramatically faster and you're, you're, you're getting maximum bang for your bandwidth, setting up a single connection and just being smarter about the way we use the, the, the packets and, and in order to adapt it to the nature of today's pages. So I'm, I'm, I've got all my fingers and toes crossed for this. I hope that... They, that they get this thing nailed down. I hope that their open source server, as soon as it's ready, gets adopted. We, we need it to put, we need it, it somehow to start getting deployed. I mean, I'm sure Google will, you know, Google's servers will, will switch to it. And suddenly browsers that, browsers that are speedy aware will be able to run all Google services much faster and as soon as uh, as soon as other sites see that, they'll say, "Well, we, we need servers that allow our site to be running three times faster. You know, one third the latency to bring the page up." So, I mean, they've demonstrated it; it works. The protocols here, uh, there's there's really no downside, no new hardware needed anywhere. We just need to use speedy aware browsers, and I'll bet you we've got speedy in our future. Speedy in our future. That's what we should have called this show. So uh, just to reiterate for people who uh, tune in like Chrome does this automatically. Anything based on Chromium would as well. So if you're on Linux and use Chromium, I presume that would do it. Well, when they incorporate it, it's right now it is still in test mode. Oh, so, so you, oh okay. So you're using Speedy 1, the earlier Speedy. Or no? Speedy has not been deployed yet. Oh, I, oh so we haven't yeah. seen this at all. No, it's in the Chromium. Oh. It's in the Chromium Galaxy somewhere, down off in some project, but is ah. not part of the main production code. Got it. Got it. And there. And then somebody was saying in the chat room that if you have Firefox, there is an you can enable Speedy. What? But I think that must be wrong. That would be wonderful, but <laughs> I'm suspect. <laughs> I would um. think. You know, I would. I would think someone could come up with their own speedy converter i guess it, it no 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 the browser the browser needs to be aware that of things it can do that it that it can send oh and i i forgot to mention also that um do i not have it in my notes did i skip those notes um in uh, firefox oh, I did, I, 11 I, I, you can enable it in an about config they say Oh, yay. Not a full, maybe not a full Im implementation. And, of course, as you mentioned, the server has to support it. It has to be at both ends, obviously. Right. So multiplex streams we get, request prioritization we get, header compression we get. We also get server push and server hint. The server 
is able to to push whatever it wants to. And there's a new header. It's X hyphen associated hyphen content. So it tags the thing it's sending without even being asked for it as content associated with the following query. So that allows the, the client that suddenly receives something it didn't ask for to know what you know why it got it. And then there there's some so that's called server push, where, where the server is able to just proactively, preemptively send something, which to me makes so much sense. Because yeah. the server does have the page. It's waiting to be asked for all these other things. Why not just go ahead and get going? Right. And so this allows that. And the other thing is, if because there's some concern, maybe that's a little too aggressive. Then there's you. There's a little sort of a softer version, which is server hint, and so that uses a header called X hyphen sub resources, and that enumerates all of the resources that the page is known to contain. So the, so the server is sort of it's suggesting to the client that it should ask for the following resources in cases where the server believes that the client is going to need it. So, so I, I, I've entered this uh, Chrome uh, URL that they put in the chat room, Chrome colon slash slash net dash internal slash hash speedy, S-P-D-Y. And it says speedy enabled, use alternate protocol, true, force speedy, always false, force speedy over SSL, true. So this is kind of a temp, this is kind of a, a early release version of this. So it's kind of in there. It's kind of in there. In a, it's in a production Chrome browser. Yeah, this is in my regular Chrome. Maybe you have to hit this to uh, to turn it on. Uh, they say it's, uh, you could turn it on in Firefox 11. It will be on by default in 13. We're, Speedy's coming. Wow. Clearly. And right now it looks That's... like only a, a Google, of course, is uh, the only... Uh, server servers supporting it but uh, uh th so you can actually view live speedy sessions here like this in the browser this is in chrome and uh so as you browse around in chrome you'll be able to see what else is using it i guess pretty cool very cool yeah. well that's our future and boy it's it's fast yeah that's exciting our future is speed our future is fast yeah you know it's <laughs> funny cuz google has always said this is their philosophy they said you know people um in fact, they, they did a study that came out last week that said people will only wait like 25 milliseconds before, before a slight look, a quarter of a second or what, 250 milliseconds, a quarter of a second before a slight site, they go, nah, it's too slow. <laughs> to switch away. Ah, yeah. I'm going to go somewhere else. So it really does become important. And uh, it's not, something we've been battling with uh, on the new Twit site uh, is, is, is speeding it up a little bit like that. Mm. Maybe we'll put. Maybe we'll implement Speedy. Steve Gibson is at grc.com. That's his website. Not yet speedified, but it will soon, right? No. Uh, don't know. <laughs> using, Would like to. You're using IIS, right? You're still using yeah. IIS. Yeah. You may, you It'll may be, be when Microsoft. I, I've got such a huge investment in yeah. in my own, you know, assembly language glue all over IIS. Right. Right. Um. You can find him there, though, at grc.com is where Spinrite is, the world's finest hard drive maintenance and recovery utility. All those free utilities he gives out uh, as well. And uh, uh, this podcast, 16 kilobit versions for the bandwidth impaired. Transcripts as well. GRC, Gibson Research Corporation, grc.com. His Twitter handle, if you follow him, you will get good stuff, I promise you, at SGGRC. And you monitor people who are sending you stuff via the at sign. 
Yeah, if they if they mention SGGRC, that's how I get all of these neat little tweets that, that are incoming, and how we found out about the guy that did the math and the thirty four trillion years to to crack fifty six. Yeah, I, I do keep an eye on that, so I'm I'm accessible that way to our listeners. Yeah, and then. Uh... Uh, of course, uh, we have uh, all of the audio and video uh, versions except that 16-kilobit version and the transcript at twit.tv. And you should watch live. Now, people are tuning in saying, well, wait a minute. Wait a minute. This is Tuesday. So normally we do this on Wednesday, 11 a.m. Pacific, 2 p.m. Eastern Time, uh, 1900 UTC at twit.tv. But uh, because of some, I don't know, some shindig Apple's throwing tomorrow, we flip-flopped. Yeah, eh, what's that all about? Something going on tomorrow. Uh, so we tomorrow in the normal Steve Gibson time, actually starting at nine thirty Pacific, twelve thirty Eastern, we'll be doing coverage of the Apple iPad. Ooh, good to know. Yeah, nine thirty a.m. Doors open at uh, and the speech begins at ten a.m. So we thought we'd start a little bit early. Tom Merritt, me, Sarah Lane of iPad today, um, and Alex Lindsay uh, from MacBreak Weekly will be there. Um, Andy Nock will be on via Skype, and then we have uh, we do have a friend. I bet I don't even want to say his name in case Apple uninvites no. him. Yep. <laughs> We'll be there. I don't think they'll invite him. He's the editor-in-chief of a major Macintosh magazine. Anyway, uh, he'll come out uh, after and uh, talk to us. And maybe, if he can, get us into the uh, the demo room, because they often have a demo room. So all of that tomorrow uh, instead of security now. Thank you, Steve. I appreciate your letting us move. My pleasure, Leo. Always a pleasure. And we'll be back to Wednesday next week for a Q&A. So yeah. uh, com slash feedback. Send me your thoughts and comments and uh we'll uh we'll get to them next week absolutely thank you steve gibson take care thanks leo Security now.